Uh, as we get into this message, I want to cover something that we did right before worship, though. I want to make sure you understand this. When I read you Psalm 83 about nations that are conspiring against Israel for the purpose of destroying Israel and tell you that that's been going on since Israel was a nation and that the way David prayed was basically wipe out the enemies, y'all don't confuse my heart. I'm not saying that I don't want people in Lebanon to be saved. I'm not saying that I don't want people in Syria to be saved. I'm praying the same way that Christians were to pray in World War II. It's not that you didn't care about the German people. It's that the German nation was bent on something that was evil, something that was the Antichrist spirit. And so you take your stand against it. Christians, let's be wise. When you see people across the world that hate you, hate your way of life, hate God's chosen nation that the Bible declares is chosen and wants to kill them and sends their children to do that by strapping bombs on them, you don't need to shy away from calling that evil. If Christians cannot stand up and declare what is good and what is not good, if we've become so politically correct that we just stand back and say, oh, well, God loves that too, then how will the world hear the clear call? The men in this church have been reciting these mitzvahs. I want you to hear these real quick. Mitzvahs are commandments. They all come from the Word. This is Corinthians 14.8. This is a summary of Corinthians 14.8. I will issue a clear call for battle. Otherwise, who will get ready? That's one of the axioms of the men in this church, that with our lives we want to issue a clear call. Well, saints, if we stand back and we say, oh, well, I know they do wicked things, but God loves everybody, that's not what the Word teaches. The Word teaches that God hates feet that are quick to shed blood, run to shed blood. The Word teaches that God hates certain things. If we can't be Christians and stand up and say God hates it when a mother straps bombs on her baby to blow up Jews for no other reason than they're God's chosen, then something's wrong with us. The church needs to develop a spine. The second mitzvah. I will serve God wholeheartedly with a different spirit like the one Caleb had so that I can go in and take the land. Since we're of a different spirit, I'm not here saying nuke the whole world. We don't care about the women and children. I'm saying I care very, very much about Assyrians, about Lebanon, about those in Jordan, about the Palestinians, about people everywhere. And yet, I believe that the land is given to Israel and that it takes a different spirit to take it. Number three was, my hands have been trained for battle. I will make right judgment. There's a training that comes in the Word. I didn't read you this morning before the worship service, Psalm 83, because it was my idea. I didn't read it to you because it's just what I thought we ought to pray. It's what the Bible tells us to pray when you see people trying to destroy Israel as a nation. So if it offends you, it should. It should. It should offend us to the point where it changes our thoughts that we think like the Word thinks. Number four was, Even when others retreat, I will stand my ground with my hand frozen to the sword that is the Word of God. You ever seen Christians march out in a cause? Right? We're going to stop abortion. We're going to stop alcohol abuse. We're going to stop child abuse. We're going to stop whatever, the killing of sea lions in the North Atlantic. I have no idea. Whatever Christians march about. It's funny when it stops being in vogue, the Christians stop marching about it. Huh. Have you ever seen fads come through the church? People excited for a little while about something and then not anymore? When there's a God calling on your life, you begin to get increasingly in tune to what God's in tune with and you can't stop. 
That's God. That's the difference between just a good idea and a God idea. It's something that endures in you, that nags at you. Verse 5, or mitzvah number 5, was I will show you my faith by what I do. One of the things that I want from this church is that our faith is shown in what we do. Since we've become very good at talking a good game. We've become very good at talking about warfare, at talking about being Christians at all costs. We've become very good at talking about laying down everything and dying to self. But when it comes time for you to do it, how well do you do in the action phase? Because it really doesn't matter about all the words. It's when it comes time to do it. Since you've never been asked to die to self if it didn't hurt. If there is not some sacrifice, if you're not giving up something, then you don't yet know what it means to die to self. And most Christians never let them get them let themselves get into that place. Mitzvah number six was me and my household, we will serve the Lord. More than anything, it's important that each of our houses be something that ministry flows from. You know what that means? You protect it. You don't allow there to be dissension. You do whatever it takes. Yesterday, some of you, I didn't return your phone calls. I'm sorry about that. I love you. I make it a rule never to not return phone calls of people in the church and to always answer it if it's close by. Yesterday, I broke that rule because I thought that it was most beneficial for my household that I concentrate on nobody except them that day. Most of my life is spent poured out into other people. And yesterday, my family needed me. Now... I don't say that because we're overwhelmed. We're a small church. We're not. But if you never tend to your own garden and you're worried about all the forests of the world, it'll sneak up on you. So, Mitzvah number seven. When this life is over, all that will remain is faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is love. Therefore, I am commanded to be a man of God advancing love. Since those are the things that I want this church to be defined by. The ladies have similar axioms in their meetings, what we teach from the pulpit, things like these three charts. Y'all remember these last week? There's a purpose for your trials. There, every obstacle is an opportunity for overcoming. We're going to hang that on the wall. You know why? Not because it's profound and I think nobody's ever heard it before, but because if you do that, you'll be a mature Christian. If you do that, you'll be different than most Christians that you meet in your life. If you sincerely look at every obstacle in your life and see it as an opportunity, you'll be different. You'll stand out like a star that shines in the brightness of the heavens because the church is ever hearing the Word of God but never putting it into practice. I want to be different. We're going to hang the James cycle of Christian growth on the wall so that whenever you're in an overwhelming situation you see it as a trial, you can count it as pure joy because you know that the Word says that a trial is just testing of your trust in God or faith and that that testing develops in you perseverance and that as you persevere... It develops maturity and results in completeness. We're going to hang that one on the wall because I want that to be true about us. The last one we're going to hang on the wall is James 1, 13 through 15. It says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after that, Desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is James' pyramid of sin and death. Isn't it amazing that anybody that you have ever seen that has fallen into sin, that is now dwelling in a place of death, it started with an unwholesome desire? 
The reason why I put the pyramid on the wall is because it's easiest to knock it off in the desire stage. And I want us to get that in our heart. I wish you'd write these in your Bibles. I wish there was a way you could inscribe it upon your heart. Because I want to build a big church. That's not how you build big churches, talking like this. If I wanted to build a big church, I'd tell you, you all are prosperous. You all are wonderful people. You all are great. That's not always true. I know a man that was a great athlete. In his hometown, anywhere you go with him today, people recognize him. And it's a small town, so they remember athletic exploits for decades. In some ways, it's almost sad. In others, you know, it's just a small town culture. The thing that I love most about that man is he told me that in all of his athletic prowess, what he liked most about it is that he remembered the times he lined up, somebody was across the line from him, and he did not want to go one more round. He said, athletics didn't show me what a great man I was. It showed me the great man that I was not. Isn't that funny? Everybody would revere him as a great athlete. What he remembered about it was the times he didn't want to go one more round. And say, if I wanted to build a huge church, I'd just tell you how great you are. But when you look into the Word, it'll tell you everywhere that you lack. Everywhere that you are not yet what you should be. Not so that you'd be depressed. So that you have the opportunity to be all that you can be. You and the United States Army, right? Our country has gone through fads over the last few hundred years. So I want to read you this quote. Craig gave me a book called The Epic the other day. And uh, I appreciate you guys when you give me books. I want to tell you, most of the time, I don't read them. Uh, and the reason that I don't read them most of the time is because if you haven't noticed, my library and my life are pretty full. <laughs> you know, It's not uncommon for me to read five and six books at a time. I read this one yesterday. I read the whole book yesterday and I was amazed. I wondered how people that I've known could read whole novels in a weekend and stuff. I found out there's a big difference between reading fictional books and reading the kind of books that I've been reading. You know, most of the books I've been reading, it's difficult to meditate on a couple pages in an hour, you know, because I'm trying to find the deep truths of the Word. I really enjoyed this book, Craig, and I want to thank you for it. It was John Eldridge's book, The Epic. And the reason I really enjoyed it is it flowed so smoothly. It was a story. And in the story, I saw bits and pieces of my own life. I even heard bits and pieces of my own sermons. And a hundred pages went by in, I don't know, an hour and a half. That never happens for me. But it happened because it was just like I was watching a movie. And as I began to meditate on it, there was a quote in this book that made me think. We went through a phase that was in the late 60s for sure, but I think it probably goes all the way back to the 1830s, where man looked to science to answer every question. You know... Pretty well anything that a scientist stood up and said we assumed was true. And there's a reason for that. Through what we call the Middle Ages, through the Dark Ages, the church was embarrassed and proven to be wrong about a great many things. In fact, every scientist that stood up and said something as simple as the earth is not the center of the universe was jailed by the church, if not tortured and killed. Every time a man of science stood up and said something that perhaps the Bible even affirmed and ignorant backwards, Romanistic church tried to kill them. So it began to create in people the idea that science could be a substitute for the church. The church is a place where you're supposed to receive answers, but suddenly, science seems to have the answers. 
Am I the only one that's noticed this? You watch the movies. It, I mean, the church is portrayed as total buffoonery. And for the most part, I agree with it. It was. It wasn't the real church. It was just the facade. You might even say the illegitimate wife. Dare I say the whore of Babylon. And yet, science has not brought people the comfort that we were looking for. Listen to this quote. I thought this guy put it so well. This quote is a guy named Neil Postman. And it was a book that he wrote called Science and the Story That We All Need. Here it goes. In the end, science does not provide answers most of us require. Its story of our origin and our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did all this begin, science answers, hmm, probably by accident, perhaps a bang or some other instance. To the question, how will it all end, science answers, hmm, probably an accident. And too many people, the accidental life is not worth living. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I can. A friend of mine was studying to be a microbiologist. He one day was looking in a microscope and said, there has got to be more. I'm talking about Jason Setzer, by the way. There has got to be more to this world than what's under this microscope. There has to be some bigger picture than this. Sometimes you feel like when you wake up, you have woken up in the middle of a movie. Everything's chaotic around you. You're in the middle of some plot that you don't really understand. You wish somebody had given you the prologue and the epilogue so you would know what to expect. You never felt like that? I have. I mean, I really have. All stories have the same elements, the same basic themes. At one time, things were good, right? This is uh, the time in the Shire if you're reading Lord of the Rings. It's uh, the time Luke was a young man living in his uncle's household if you're watching Star Wars. If you're watching the Titanic, it's the love affair that's occurring on the boat. All stories start when something's good. But then what happens? Something bad has to ensue. There's a jealous lover. There's a villain that appears. There is something that is bad that happens. Then, every good story, they embark on some journey, some battle, something to fight with, something to contend with, and for what aim? They want to be restored. They want things to be back like they were. Something good. At just the right moment in the story, when all things seem hopeless, when it doesn't look like you'll ever see whatever it is that was good in your life again, what happens? A hero appears. Somebody who is unlikely, a Rocky Balboa. Y'all ever hear how that movie was made? The man took his script to Hollywood and they didn't want it. He began telling people that he had a movie and nobody was interested. You know one of the reasons nobody was interested? He wanted to star in it. I don't know if you all have seen Sylvester Stallone up close, but particularly in the 70s, it would be hard to picture him as a heavyweight boxer. But that was the point of the story, wasn't it? A hero appeared. Somebody that everybody could put their hopes in, who looked like he had no chance to win. An underdog, if you will. And yet in the end, somehow, he pulls it out. Why do those stories appeal to us? And what is our favorite ending, by the way? What do you like to hear more than anything else? In fact, if you watch a movie and it doesn't end this way, you're mad and you look on the DVD to see if there is an alternate ending. What, what ending are you looking for? Oh, and they lived happily ever after. Where did that come from? How did you get those desires? 
And why is it that they're universal? You can show a film anywhere. And if the star... I remember one year we went to see Message in a Bottle on Valentine's Day. I was some kind of upset. I actually got pulled over on the way home. I was talking to the people in the back seat about just how horrible the movie was and apparently I swerved. So the night before I was preaching a sermon, I was getting a sobriety test on the side of the road. The movie was horrible. Now, if you like that movie, please don't be offended with Eric for that. You know why it was horrible? It didn't end well. Something in us is unsettling. In fact, Hollywood every now and then shocks us like that on purpose. They don't allow it to end right so that you're talking about it at the coffee pot. Why is it that all stories have the same elements that are a success? Why is it that when we watch Maximus' life, they even call him the great man in the movie Gladiator, and then he has to go through tragedy, right? Something gets bad that happens. The villain enters, Commodus. Then we see him as a slave, only the most unlikely slave to rise to the top of Rome and even challenge the evil villain, kill him in the arena so that all Rome is restored. Why is it that those kind of movies have a universal appeal? I think it's because Ecclesiastes says God has written it upon our hearts. God imprinted upon each one of us something of Himself. There's a story within you and it's crying out for something. And I couldn't help but do this. Uh-oh, we've got to bring our computer back up. I hope. I couldn't help but do this. Anybody know who Bonnie Tyler is? Are there any 80s music fans in here? Uh-huh. Hold on, I'm typing in a password. The technical church, you've got to love this. Listen to this. Hopefully it'll play. Should be. This woman is talking about having an unfulfilled life, laying on her bed at night, wondering about what it is that she needs. Mankind was built with a need for a hero, for a story, for something that promises us better than what we have. Have you ever wondered why? When you see something like Maximus, and you're a guy particularly, something in there when you leave that movie makes you want to feel something. You want to be courageous, don't you? Why? Why is it that you see what he did and it makes you want to feel courageous even though you know that story's not true? Women, have you ever watched one of the shows where somebody is maybe not as beautiful and then through makeovers and different things that happen in their life, they're sought after by the most beautiful of people. And something in that makes you want to be beautiful. Little girls from... The days that they're born, like they're hairbrushed. Why? 
You hear all of your life in church about original sin, right? About the fall of man. You know what you never hear anything about? The glory man had before. I'm telling you that when God made us in His image, He stamped certain characteristics in us. He stamped certain things in us that sin suppresses, that Hollywood may distort. But there is a desire within men to be courageous. There is a desire within women to be beautiful. And not just those things, but many others. And where did you get them? You got them because you were little statues that are filled with God, that look like God and are made after His own image. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Yes, forgive me for the Bonnie Tyler. That turned out to be anticlimactic. This morning it was a great idea at about 6 (laughs) o'clock. I'm known to preach messages around Steppenwolf. It's Magic Carpet Ride or Freddie Mercury in Queens singing about we're the princes of the universe. I figure I could pick Bonnie Tyler too. Y'all in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words into the end of the world. In the heavens He has pitched His tent for the sun. He goes on to describe something. Turn to Acts and then I want to tell you about this. In Acts 14, Y'all turning? In Acts 14, look at what Paul says to our friends at Lystra in Derby. Verse 16, 14-16. In the past, He, He here is God. Let all nations go their own way. Yet He Himself, He has not left Himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides for you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Both in the creation, whether you're looking at the skies and you're looking at the starry realm, or even in our agriculture, there is a witness that goes forth. And I found out in the 20th century, even in our movies and songs, there's a witness that goes forth even from lost men. He just said God didn't leave the people in Lystra and Derby without a witness. God did not leave them without witness. And these were lost people. What was their witness? That God gave them crops. That God rained on them at the right time. Friends, I'm telling you the reason that most people prefer spring to winter is because somewhere deep inside you is imprinted an image of God that longs to restore the creation. And when you see the little flowers budding and the little bunnies that are newly born hopping around and all of those things, it begins in you the witness of creation crying out for something more of the story. You're looking for the happily ever after. Too long our gospel's been robbed of its power. I tell you what, would you be happy with a movie where Maximus fights in the arena, he slays Commodus, and then they sing church hymns forever on clouds? God forgive me for using a word like this, but that slang word that means to pull the vacuum, that's what I think about that. Or, here's one, we have the Titanic, you know, Jack and Rose are on the bow, looking into the sunset. Beautiful, right? And suddenly it says, boy, we could do this forever. Or we could sit on clouds and play harps. 
Would that be much of a movie? Could you see anybody realistically wanting to do that? What have you been told about heaven? Oh, it's a day where we will play harps. We will worship forever. We were made to worship and that's what we'll do in heaven. We will sing songs to God forever. Forgive me how boring. How incredibly boring. And what if there are songs you don't like? Would somebody show me that in the Scripture, by the way? And while you're looking, would you show me die and go to heaven? Show me those concepts that come right out of a diseased church in the Middle Ages that got a seed of faith at best. And we've not gone any further. So this is why our children grow up thinking the Bible is boring. They look at any church movie, any Christian movie, especially prior to the Passion of Christ, and think, oh my goodness, I would rather be tortured than have to go watch one of those cheesy shows. Right? But, play Rocky. Play some underdog story, whatever it is. Lord, it could be Seabiscuit. I don't know. And there's something in us that is wrong to it. Isn't there? Am I the only one that watches movies in here? None of you all know what I'm talking about. There's not somebody on the back row that's watched a few trilogies in their life? See, I have too. And why are you drawn to it? Oh my God, here's one you should never mention from the pulpit, right? Why do you like Matrix? Don't you know inside, don't you feel somewhere that this world that's going on around us is a little bit hollow and there has to be something beyond it? Something that's real? Don't you feel that inside? And yet somehow that movie's scorned and bad. People only say, hey, if Tolkien wrote it or C.S. Lewis, then it's wonderful. If some lost guys wrote it, then there can't be any truth in it. Guys, I'm telling you that we are living in something that the Bible calls a human drama. Turn with me to Ephesians 3. I want to tell you why we crave the things that we crave. And look at what can we do and what can the church do not to change the gospel, not to try to 20th century the gospel to make it appealing. I'm telling you about revealing the truth of the gospel instead of shrouding it and hiding it in an old dead religion that nobody can accept or would want to accept. There's a reason that the world hasn't run to the church for salvation. The church is boring. It doesn't even understand what God's doing for it. In Ephesians 3, starting around... I guess it would be good to look these up before I came, huh? Starting in verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach or proclaim to the Gentiles, that's you, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past has been hidden in God who created all things. His intent. Why is God doing everything that He's doing? His intent. What is the plot line here? What is the purpose? His intent was now, that now through the church, the manifold, which means many-sided, wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. You find out in reading the Word that there was a beautiful beginning. You remember all movies had some things in common? They were started in a place where all things were good, right? Well, doesn't the Bible start that way? We started in a garden where all things were good. A man and woman were made for each other. Man in a perfect relationship in a beautiful garden. But what happens in every beautiful story? In every epic, if you will? 
something happened. A villain appeared. A Darth Vader. A Darth Maul. A Lord Sidious. Uh, I guess those are all from the same movie. A Klingon, if you're the first Star Trek. Later, they're friends. Do you understand what I'm saying? Something happened. And when that happened, the next thing that the world is waiting for, we're in a battle somewhere between the tragedy that occurred and the restoration that needs to occur in the movie. We're in that training period where Rocky goes to somewhere cold and trains. We're in that time period where it is almost drudgery because you remember the tragedy and that's what you see around you and you have the promise of hope, but you don't necessarily see it. And the world is crying out for something. Have you ever sat in a room full of people? Now, you expect this if the people are all 100 years old. It's really sad when the people are all in their 30s and 40s in this, but what do you hear? My job is so bad. My health is so poor. My finances are so undone. Those people are crying out having suffered tragedy for a hero. They're crying out for help in some kind of way. Now, if you're a Christian and that's what you do, what does that show that you've not met? The hero. If you're lost, this is what's expected. I want you to understand about this hero. The Bible teaches us something. Didn't you like to watch that movie first night? Y'all remember when that came out? Good, good movie, right? You love noble Lancelot who fights for Guinevere, right? Not so excited about the adultery that happens in the movie, but hey, they're flawed, right? You love how the noble knight rides off and rescues somebody from a dominion of darkness, don't you? When's the last time you heard Jesus portrayed in a way that made Him sound like He was rescuing you who were in bondage? Did you know that Colossians says that very thing? Turn to Colossians. The Gospel's been robbed of its appeal by being dressed in a skirt, so to speak. Or dare I say, a black robe and white collar. In Colossians 1, starting in verse... Hmm. 12... Nine. How about that? For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of God. Look at this verse 13. Please, look at your Bibles. Read this verse. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. The Bible paints a picture not unlike that of a movie where you had been taken captive. You were in a place where something was good, where you longed to walk with God and it was good and something took you captive. And now you find yourself in the dominion of darkness, chained, needing to be rescued. And God sent a hero to come and rescue you. Now you love in the movies if they slip off undetected. That's good. But what's better than that? What's better than that is when Rambo comes in and the one man kills thousands 
of people and utterly lays waste to the enemy that you might be rescued. Have you ever heard a story like that in the Bible? Well, you don't have to flip far. Turn your Bible one page. What does this mean in Colossians 2? Starting in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulation that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Now here's the part of the story that I didn't tell you. Everything was good in a garden, right? But there was a problem with mankind. See, we didn't just have a villain appear who came in and took us captive. No, that would be so easy. That would make us not at fault at all, wouldn't it? What we are is we are people that were given a powerful thing, a free will. In our free will, God said, hey, look, I'm going to give you the earth. I want you to tend it. Take care of it. I'm going to give you all of the animals. I'm going to give you everything. And hey, man, by the way, what do you crave right now? Oh, Lord, I need a helper. Well, I'm going to give you one of those too. A beautiful woman. Gave us all of those things. What is one thing that God said for man not to do? Just one. No need of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, man, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I will show you what's good and what is bad. I will show you the path you're to walk in. I will show you the way that you are supposed to go. When man accepted the villain's advice and rejected God as that source of knowledge, what man did was show God, I don't trust you. Now, let's think about mistrust in that light. What happens in our lives on a daily basis when you begin to feel the way that God would want you to go, but you decide the cost is too high, the persecution too great, the road too difficult? Does man not dwell in that same mistrust now? Doesn't he? Of course. I want to show you something this great hero that appears makes a public spectacle of the enemy for you. Was he an underdog? Well, Lord, wasn't he? 4,000 years of human beings from Adam right on up to Joseph, Jesus' father, had stood up and said, we will serve God, and yet in some major area of their life, fallen flat on their face in mistrust whether striking a rock that they were supposed to speak to or watching somebody take a bath that they had no business watching. By the way, when did that happen? In the springtime, when kings go off to war. Why would somebody war in the spring? That's when you're most conscious of having something good that you want to protect. (laughs) Anyway, why? Why during these times would Jesus come forth in the way that He did? Through the most lowly of circumstances, an underdog of underdogs, not born into the elite, not born into aristocracy, not born a powerful conquering king, 
but a humble carpenter, why on earth would he choose to come that way? Boy, what a complex question, huh? Because if he can do it as a human being, then certainly you can. The reason Rocky appeals to you is because when you look at tiny little Sylvester Stallone, especially before he had his body all pumped up with God knows what, you could think, it's somewhere in the back of your mind. That could be me. I could do that. Now, ladies, your husbands probably won't admit to that. But that's exactly why men like action movies. There's something that cries out in us. We want to rescue. We want to deliver. We want to be courageous. The saddest men you'll ever meet are those that feel so far from being able to do any of those things that they don't think of themselves as men. God stamped that in our heart. Do you know why He stamped it in our heart? Because it's what He wants to do. He wants to rescue. He wants to deliver. He wants to come in with you as the damsel in distress and protect you from the enemy. The only thing He's looking for is trust. You ever see a movie? Like when I saw First Night. Sean Connery plays a noble part. King Arthur. The guy's noble beyond belief, right? I wanted to choke Guinevere. I wanted to reach into the TV screen and choke her because as noble and as kingly as her husband was, she still loved another. Somewhere in the middle of that movie, it struck me in the heart that as noble and as kingly as my husband is, there is a love for another in me. I have to learn to stamp it out. It's an illegitimate husband. If you have your Bible concordances and you want to look it up sometime, it's a Paul Teal. P-A-L-T-I-E-L. An illegitimate husband crying after you, hoping for your affection. Turn with me to Joshua 10. Let's talk about our great hero. Now, I don't have to go through the whole thing about Joshua again, do I? What does Joshua mean? Joshua is the same word as Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. His very life was symbolic of Jesus. Not in every way, but in many ways. Do you know why? As much as the Bible is one long story, within it are subplots that over and over and over tell us the same thing. You remember I said when you watch Maximus, you want to be courageous. Maybe when you watch some other show, you want to be clever or you want to be beautiful or whatever it is. Well, when you read about Gideon, you're supposed to want to be courageous. When you read about Joshua, you're supposed to want to be victorious. When you read about Deborah, you're supposed to want to be faithful. When you read about Esther, you're supposed to want to be beautiful. These are all images of God stamped on His people. That's why those movies appeal to you. Now, some Christians are going to fall off the reservation here, but before I read Joshua, I began thinking about, well, not all movies that Christians like, not all of them display God, do they? Then I began to think about it. Even the horror films, by the way, my wife won't watch them, I will. Hope that didn't make you all think that I'm a sluggard in some kind of way. Why is it that people like to watch a horror film? Because inside you somewhere you know you are battling the forces of darkness. Something about it draws you to it, especially if in the end the bad creature dies. 
something about it. Have you never had dreams? You watch my little boys when they sleep. This one right here on the front row rolls right out of his bed in the middle of the night. He will stand up and be shouting at the wall and have no idea he's doing it. Because even from the time we are little, even in our dreams, what do we do? We war against evil things. Why is that? Because God has stamped it upon our hearts. You put these little kids outside and watch them play for a few hours. You watch what they'll do. The boys will conquer and destroy and the girls will want to be pretty and be rescued. Now, if that sounds sexist to you, I'm sorry, you must not have children. Because if you watch children, that's how they play. Now, stereotypes are just that. It's a stereotype. I'm not saying that that's the only thing they do. Please don't get hung up on some corruption of some twisted women's lib movement as I preach. In Joshua 10, we see something that I think is noteworthy. Joshua 10, starting in verse 19. Man, you talk about a strong story. A Maximus if there ever was one. I have a good friend that went through officer training school. He received a nickname in boot camp. From the world's perspective, this was just about the highest honor they could give him. They started calling him Maximus. Why do you think they did that? They saw in him something that embodied courage, integrity, a tenacity, a warrior. When you think of Christianity, is that what you think of? Or do you think of a mealy mouth, limp-wristed, little panty-waist? Panty-waist not a bad word. That's something that came from the olden days when the guys used to wear their belts way up here. As that became out of vogue, that's how you began teasing it. What is your conception of Christianity? Is it bold and strong and courageous? Is it effeminate and weak and pink? Mauve carpet. Hmm? Watch what Joshua does here. Think about this. Verse 16. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in a cave at Makkedah. Five kings came out and attacked Israel. Joshua was fighting with them. When Joshua told, was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makkedah, he said, Roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies and attack them from the rear. Don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hands. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But a few who were left reached their fortified cities. Always be one more battle. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makedah, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought out the kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. Incidentally, all of those cities, five of them, are cities that are destined to become part of Israel. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all of the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come out with him, Come here, put, the, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to your enemies who you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them 
on five trees where they were left hanging on the trees until evening. A brutal, gory, horrible story if you don't have eyes to see. Those five kings were kings' diminutive powers over a region that Israel was supposed to hold, that Israel was commanded to take. You know what they correspond to? If this were an allegory, and it's not, it's an actual real story that you can learn from as an example. This is that area in your life that has dominion over you. Maybe even five areas in your life that has dominion over you. Maybe you can't control your tongue. Maybe you just can't trust God with your finances and the rest of your life. Maybe you can't quit gossiping or lusting or hating or God knows what else. God sent us a hero that could easily kill them, but instead He restrained them in a cave in order to teach you something, waiting for everybody to be assembled there publicly. He took whatever was against Cassidy and Mandy and Lindsay, and He laid it down before all Israel to see. Then our King Jesus, He didn't kill them right away. He didn't just destroy them to show you how great He was. He laid down everything that was opposed to you and said, come, I will show you. This is how you put your foot on the Put your foot on its neck. You can have victory. Stop being scared. Stop being afraid. It's time to be courageous. Our hero has shown us the way to victory. The question is, will the church cower in ignorance and disbelief? Or will we stand and be the hero that we're called to be, like Him? Saints, what is it that opposes us? What has got you intimidated? What makes you think that you can't succeed or you can't win? not the example of all the righteousness around you. Look around you. You see flawed people just like you. And yet you see good things that come out of their lives. What makes Matthew have victory in one area you don't have victory in yet? Is it because Matthew's a great man? Or is it because he watched intently as Jesus put his foot on the neck of that enemy and he learned from Jesus how to put his foot on the neck of the enemy? Saints, it's time that we realize where we are in the story. It's too late. We can't begin it again. You were born into the time period between the tragedy that occurred and the victory that is yet to come. And what happens in that part of the story? There's a long journey. There's a long battle. There is something that involves human interaction, learning, a struggle to survive and to win, a following of a hero, a William Wallace, if you watch Braveheart. Do you remember how beautiful the opening scenes of that movie were? riding horseback with a beautiful woman through the Scottish countryside until tragedy struck. Somebody wanted to harm the woman. Then forgive me for the expression, but all hell broke loose until the one man gave his life for the freedom of a nation. Why do you think we like those movies? Because you know inside that's what Jesus does for us. Saints, don't be scared to be heroic. Don't be scared to crave adventure. God's called us to it. Too long the church has sat back on its pews. Mamby-pamby Christianity. At best, we courageously write a check. At best. Most don't even do that. Look for those that need rescuing. Be like your king. Courageously stomp on the power that tries to put you under its feet. Why do you think he held them up in the cave until you could all assemble there? 
<laughs> you ever thought about solitary confinement? How many of you have ever craved solitude? Be honest. Yeah, I craved some yesterday. Solitude. Somehow, in all of our struggle with science to provide us answers and finding it hollow, another thing's crept into the hearts of many Christians. The problem with the world is all the people in it. I love my wife. I love my family. If I could just spend time with them, everything would be okay. Alas, you find out your wife and family aren't perfect either. How many Christians live isolated lives because somebody hurt them? Lord have mercy. Can you imagine if the first time Braveheart got hurt, he turned from his mission? I always thought it was funny in Star Wars, it's like they're chopping off appendages, you know? <laughs> Every battle, people are maimed and wounded. We need to realize that as much as I'm talking about this as a movie, as the creation story, as a human drama being played out for a reason, the difference between it and a movie is there's real pain. There's real heartache. There are real stakes. So some Christians have decided to retreat from the battle, hide in their homes. The last word of the church recorded is, Come, Lord Jesus. The last recorded words of Jesus before leaving the earth are, Go. We're asking Him to come fix all of the problems again. He's asking us to go and act like Him, like a hero, fix all of the problems so that He can come. If solitude was not wrong for a Christian if isolation was not wrong for a Christian, then why have we decided that it is the absolute worst form of punishment? When you put somebody in jail and they're misbehaving, what do you do? If you can't kill them, which would be a preference, you put them in solitary confinement, don't you? And the longer they're in solitary confinement, the worse it's considered to be, is it not? Christians, why do we put ourselves in solitary confinement? I want you to think back over the last month. Don't you say it. But over the last month, who outside of your immediate family have you fellowshiped with? Have you put yourself in your own solitary confinement? If you took out a calendar and wrote down every event that you initiated and participated in outside of your own family, would your calendar be full or empty? We were created to be social beings. There's a reason for that. When we get together, if I sit with Bobby over lunch, you know what happens almost every time? I mean almost every time unless something's really wrong with him or really wrong with me. We share stories. About the time Ben Fort did this or the time that I saw Larry Spruill do that or whoever it is from our past, we share stories. And in those stories, we begin to bond with each other. It tells us a little bit more about who Bobby is, who Eric is. We share of our human experience in stories. Why would God want you Christians that understand the big picture, the real story, to spend time with other people so they'll understand the cravings of their own heart? So they'll learn to yearn for what God yearns for. Quit imposing solitary confinement on yourselves. And quit hanging out with those that already know your whole story. Branch out. 
Saints, it's time to be heroic. There are people that need to be rescued, just like you needed to be rescued. I want to read you one more quote here. Y'all bored with me yet? Y'all wouldn't tell me the truth anyway on tape, would you? No. Y'all ready? Suppose there were a king who loved a humble maiden. This king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by the love for a humble maiden. Now look, some of the girls already have heartwarming smiles about this story, huh? How could he declare his love for her? And in an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied to his hands, tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. Have you ever wondered why God presented Himself to us in the way of a first century Galilean Jew? Who would not run out and coweringly bow to the God of the universe coming in all of His splendor and might? But would you really love Him? Or would you just fear who He was? What does First John, or John, the first chapter, tell us? He came to that which was His own, and His own received Him not. But as many who did receive Him, He gave the power to become sons of God. Why? Because in the man Jesus, stripped of all kingly glory, looking just like a humble servant, just like you, you either saw in Him the attributes of a king, or you saw what was before you, a humble servant. And in that way, He knows whether or not you really love Him, or you just love who He is. That's a parable, saints. That's a parable about our king. We all look like humble servants. The Bible says if we'll pursue truth, if we'll live godly lives, that we're a kingdom of priests, a nation of kings and priests. That very godly character is displayed even in this church. We said from the very beginning we would not build some cathedral to draw people to us. We don't have a if you will build it, they will come mentality. Because in looking at our humble circumstances and looking at what's around us, you either see the attributes of God in us at work or you don't. And if you were only here because you loved a building, we wouldn't want you anyway. It's a God's honest truth. That's a goat, not a sheep. But let me ask you something about our king. Do you love him even when you don't see his hand at work immediately in your life? Do you love him even when you don't see his kingly chariot riding in to rescue you right away? Do you love Him only in the day of deliverance? Or do you love Him also in the days of the tragedy that's occurred? Waiting to war. Waiting to see the happily ever after. I'm fond of talking about the resurrection. 
Those of you that know me know that that's where my real heart lies. Even when I say I have an interest in eschatology, it's only because it's the happily ever after in the story. It's the time period where all is right again. Man has the glory he had before and more. God is with us fully in all of His people. I love that part of the story. Loyalty is required. One of my favorite movies of all time, and I have at least one fan of that movie here with me, is Craig. Doc Holliday is talking with White Earp in the movie Tombstone. Oh yeah, got, got another fan in the back. Oh my God, how could you Christians like R-rated movies? Okay, Gilligan, calm down. I like it because of the godly theme that I see in it. Same way I can like an R-rated person. Think anybody will dare to ask me how I like R-rated movies now? I have that perfect response. The same way I like you. The thing that I like most about it is Doc Holliday's life is epping away. He's struggling to breathe. He's got a disease that can't be cured. And yet he's out riding on horseback fighting with the enemy. Texas Jack looks over at Doc and says, Doc, why are you doing this, man? You're killing yourself. He said, White Earp is my friend. Texas Jack said, I've got a lot of friends. Doc Holliday said, I don't. Saints, you've got to be willing to give your life in this battle with your king. The reason I love that story is because it displays the loyalty that I want. Now, it's a corrupted form. Those guys were killers. And yet, I'm still drawn to it. The reason I love Maximus is because I want to be courageous in that way. The reason I love First Night is because I want to be noble like Arthur. Now, here's the beautiful thing. It's not wrong for me to love those movies and want those things. God stamped that in my heart, just like He stamped in your heart those same desires. Will you cower and hide and just decide that you can't be womanly, that you can't be manly because you're a Christian? Go be a part of some church painting somewhere with effeminate little spiritual figures everywhere. Or will you be a part of the living, dynamic, heroic church that Jesus said, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When I think of courageous now, I think of Acts 4.13. I think of Peter and John refusing to stop preaching. When I think of loyalty, I think of them being beaten in front of the Sanhedrin and coming out and going, (laughs) we're worthy to suffer for the name and we will not stop. That's loyalty. I see in the Scripture those heroes. If you don't, perhaps you've been reading the wrong story. We're going to close. Did anybody ever see the greatest story ever told? Well, whether it is or is not is a debatable matter. But I can tell you the actual word is vivacious. It's alive with character. It's alive with meaning. The problem is, is it's a three and a half hour movie. And it's easy to get lost in all of the subplots. I want you to see it for what it is. The Word tells you to be strong and courageous, to rescue those who are oppressed, to take up the cause of those that are suffering from injustice because that's who God is and He wants you to be like Him. 
Saints, stand to your feet and let's pray that God make us the heroes that we were called to be.